This week, um, we have Mia McLeod speaking. This is a continuation of a talk that she gave uh, back in the summer uh, on June 19th about her experiences uh, coming to the United States from the Netherlands and being a, a student, a foreign student in this country, and her experiences um, in that uh, in that period. So, um, Mia. Uh, last time we ended when uh, we had a dance uh, of all foreign students and they were all supposed to bring their um, national costume for the dance. And I came in wooden shoes and um, a Dutch costume. And um, it turned out there were a lot of Latin students and they were all trying to do the samba and the rumba and <laughs> And it was very difficult to do that in wooden shoes, and I had to take them off and dance in my, in my socks that evening. Um, when I got to the University of Missouri, I lived in a co-op. It was uh, about 20 girls that lived in a big house with a, with a mother and a father, you know, the way they do that here. And um, all our... Uh, all the things like cleaning and uh, upkeep and cooking were done by uh, the students to make it as cheap as possible because all of us were dirt poor and didn't have any money. Um, we had a guest bathroom that was uh, all the paint had peeled off. We didn't have money to buy paint, but we found a bunch of buckets of, with a little bit of paint in the bottom, but they were all different colors. And we used all those colors up to paint the guest bathroom. And it was the most interesting bathroom you've ever seen, with orange and green and red and white and every color under the sun, little dabs here in every color. And I, our guests always thought it was the most fascinating bathroom they'd ever seen. Um, I had the job of catching all the mice that showed up uh, because... Most of the girls were afraid of handling a mouse, and that saved me from doing cooking and some of it cleaning. Um, one of the girls was a very good seamstress, but we didn't have much space. Four girls to a room, you know, stacked beds and so on. And, but she was a beautiful seamstress, and so... She didn't have any room to put all her sewing materials uh, around the sewing machine. Um, so what she was she wore she wore falsies, and one of the things that she did to save space was whenever she had to pin something, she had pins loose. She stuck them in in her falsies. That I thought it was really funny. And, and one day, her fiancé came to the door and said, I have to see her immediately. There's, an, there's a real problem that we've got to solve. And we called her, and she completely forgot that. She showed up at the door with all these pins in, <laughs> in her falsies. It was a really funny place. Um, our next-door neighbors were the uh, Kappa Kappa Kappa, and when they had parties, they always woke us up at about 2 o'clock in the morning, being mostly drunk. And they made so much noise that they s stopped us from sleeping. 
so when we knew that they had a, a party next door, we, we prepared a bunch of water balloons because their parking lot was just underneath our windows. And if they were very noisy, we threw water balloons at them. And when they complained, we said, well, would you like, to, would you like us to report you to the police for being disturbing us? No, they didn't. But to get money, I did some really funny, a really funny job there. The Department of Agriculture there, the Agricultural School, um, also developed different kinds of foods. And one of the kinds of foods was pickles. And they wanted people to taste the pickles to see which ones were the best ones. Can you imagine having a line of pickles lined up and you have to take one from each jar and tell them which one was the best one? <laughs> I, I never could figure it out, and I liked bread and butter pickles, so if they had those, I just pointed to them, to that, after going through the line. Because I couldn't remember from one pickle to the next when <laughs> which, were, which was better. Um, I babysat, of course, and the university had a program where they asked foreign students to uh, talk to service uh, organizations, uh, churches, but the university insisted that we be paid for our time so that we'd have some spending money. Um, the university was very nice about that. And so, all in all, after the, the previous job that I had in the summertime where they tried to cheat me out of my earnings, um, I made it through school that day, uh, that year. I had enough money to pay for room and board, and I paid it right up front, and I didn't have any money left, and so that's the way I got some spending money. Um, I had one really fun experience because in Illinois, they were having a jamboree for the girls, scouts, and they asked me to come and give a talk about uh, Girl Scouts in the Netherlands, which was for, Girl Scouts were forbidden during the war. And right after the war, I started a troop at age 15 and said, you know, we're going to be Girl Scouts now. And we had a wonderful time. Uh, I talked to them about that, and there were about 2,000 girls there, which was really amazing. We had a wonderful time. Um, there was something serious, too. At, uh, I found the Congregational Chapel there, with a brand new young minister. And he was, uh, there were a whole bunch of students and they, they really loved it there because he was very liberal and didn't threaten us with hell and damnation. And so um, he said we were going to try to break open the University of Missouri for admission for, for Negroes. And so he contacted the Negro College nearby there in Jefferson City and uh, we exchanged. We, we went to visit them, and they came to visit our chapel. And actually, then, um, members of the, the student group and the minister would go to the president of the University of Missouri, who agreed with us that it wasn't a good idea, but he couldn't get it through that, you could, that, that Negroes could be admitted. Um, the year after I left the university, they admitted the first 
black student in the University of Missouri. And that was actually in 1954, well before many colleges in the South had to do that. Um, and I was very proud of, of, of that group. <laughs> I was really pleased to have been a member of that. Um, because I'd never seen a Negro before I'd come to this country. And I was appalled when I heard about all them and read about all the, the discrimination against them. And it, it was really bad. Now, this, the classrooms were very interesting. The classes I took was, were very interesting. I took um, a major in physical education and pre-medicine. Um, the school had a wonderful pool, and I asked, oh, uh, you have a... a a water polo team, because I had been playing water polo when I was in the Netherlands. And what they said appalled me was, don't you know that water polo is unhealthy for women? Uh, Well, I'm pretty healthy, and I've been playing water polo for four years now, and it never bothered me. Oh... Another class, I went into one class that was physics, which I needed, uh, because if I was going to medical school or anything like that, I needed physics. The professor came, I was the only person in the class, a woman in the class. The professor came in the first day and he stated, no woman is capable of learning physics, and no woman in my class has ever passed. Oh, my gosh. You know, what kind of a guy is this? Um, I, had, I dated, at that point, two uh, graduate students in physics. He said, oh, you're in his class, and you can prove that he's totally wrong. And if there's anything you don't understand, call us, and we'll explain it to you till you can, can pass the tests. Well, one time I had so much extra other work to do, that I asked them to help me to quickly understand something. And one of them came over right away, about five minutes he was there, and explained it to me. The, fortunately, that professor did blind testing. And so he didn't know whose paper he was looking at when he graded it. And by the time, by the, time the whole thing was over, was, he was in total shock. He said... You're the first woman I have known that has a brain. (laughs) Where was this guy? He lived in the Middle Ages. Well, anyway, another thing about the Congregational Chapel, um, when I came back for the fourth year, the minister said, Mia, I'm showing some slides. I went to Europe this summer, and I want you to be sure to be there. So I came, and he started the slides, and what the slides showed was my family in front of the house where I grew up. He had met them in Europe at a meeting. My father had gone to that same meeting, and uh, he said, he asked my father, do you know somebody by the name of Mia Snell? And my father said, yes, that's my daughter. And he said, well, she comes to my church in the congregational chapel. <laughs> so... 
He, my father invited him to his home, and they had a wonderful time together. That was a real surprise. Um, otherwise, things went pretty well that year. And um, oh, and, and far as we as our house was concerned, there was one girl, and we really had a hard time about this. She got engaged to two young men at the same time. And she asked us if we could help her work one out the back door when the, f- the other one was coming to the front door. Um, she finally married the guy that decided to leave and went to Mexico. So she went to Mexico and married him there. But <laughs> it took us several months. And we said, we can't keep up with this. <laughs> Having to tell one, well, you have to leave now. You know, goodbye. We're, we're going to do something else. And then the other guy standing in front of the door. It was a um, house where every woman that was there was interested in an education and nothing else. Um, So when we were asked if we would join a a sorority, we said no. Um, Oh, you don't have to pay us. We just want to bring our grade average up because they had a competition about which sorority had the highest average grades. We said, no, our house always had the highest average grades of the women's houses. So that was interesting. Um, Toward the end of that year, um, the the foreign student office helped me get a job in Colorado. And I love to play tennis, and the last time I told you I had an accident uh, that, that tore my knee up. Um, so one day in the spring, close to the time when school was over, I was playing tennis with two young men. And um, at one point when we were done, I jumped over the net, which I not normally did, and came down on that knee wrong and tore it up, tore it up again. Uh, they said, well, it'll get better in a few minutes, so we're going to class, and uh, just get up when you can. And my knees started getting bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, it looked like a football. And an hour late, and I sat in the sun, and I couldn't get up. And I was so sunburned, and it hurt, and the knee hurt. So another friend of mine showed up at the tennis court and said, well, what's the matter with you? I said, oh, I tore my knee up. And he said, well... Um, I'm going to put you in the shade, and then I'm going to, to find a phone, and I'm going to call the ambulance to pick you up. And the ambulance came, and I ended up in the hospital. But they did surgery. But the job I had in Colorado was as a waitress. And they put a cast on me that started at the hip and went all the way down to my ankle. And they said it's a walking cast like that, see. And I, if I don't, don't have that job, I can't finish my schooling. It's, that's a real problem. Um, two friends of mine said, you can ride with us in the car. We are going to Albuquerque. We, drop you, uh, we are going to California. Uh, we'll drop you off at that resort, which was in the middle of nowhere in, in Colorado. You know, it was off, way off in the mountains where there was no development whatsoever except they'd build a lodge 
and it was owned by a multimillionaire, and all his friends came. They were all millionaires. So uh, I decided, well, I'll go and see what happens. And I arrived, and he looked at my leg, and he said, how are you going to wait on tables? I was also the hostess for them. And I said, well, I'm going to wait on tables no matter what. You think you can do that? And I said, I can do anything because I needed that money to go to school the next year. So I waited on tables and I managed it with a cast on my leg. And you should have seen the tips I got. (laughs) It was amazing. After a few, um, it was about three weeks after I'd been there, eight weeks were up. And I asked them if, when they went into town, if I could go along to get that cast cut off. Oh, we're not going, we have all the supplies we need for about six, eight weeks. We're not going to town. How am I going to get that cast on? Now, we had a chef who was an alcoholic. And um, if he could... He was in that, that place because he couldn't get at any alcohol because they always locked the bar up so he couldn't get at, get at it. Somehow or other, he had gotten a bottle of scotch and he drank it all at one time. He was rip-roaring drunk that day. So I went to the kitchen and I found his best carving knife and I cut that cast off myself. Um... When he came into the kitchen that evening, he said, what happened to my carving knife? I said, well, I used it to cut my uh, cast off. It worked very well. He says, it's ruined. It's so dull. And he got, he got really upset. So we were supposed to wait on tables at night. And um, he had a salad of cottage cheese. And, uh, you know, you put a peach half on top. So he brought that out. And we also were supposed to serve tomato soup. And he had this big bucket with tomato soup. And we said, hey, you know, you've forgotten to bring the peaches out. Go get the cans of peaches so we can fix these salads. So he went stomping off to the storeroom, and he was not recovered from all this scotch yet. He got the cans of peaches, opened them up, and dumped them in the tomato soup. He said, that's not where they went. He said, well, just fish them out, rinse them off, and just put the peaches on the, on the salad. But what about the tomato soup? He said, just tell our guests that this is a very special recipe that I learned when I was in Paris, learning how to cook. We served that, and people said, oh, this is very peculiar tomato soup. You know, we can't, we've never tasted anything like this. And we said, well, it's a very special recipe that he got from Cordon Bleu in Paris. Well, they ate it. Because you can't throw Cordon Bleu away, see. So um, that was one interesting thing. Um, I, had a, I had a problem with my sister at that time. She was in the Netherlands, and she was going to a teacher's college because she wanted to teach. And one of her assignments was make a herbarium. 
Um, and uh, handed in, it was after the summer was over with, and I knew about this when I went over there to, to Colorado. And I told her, Nellie, you know what? Since you don't feel you can do this, I will make a herbarium for, for you from the plants that I find in Colorado. So I asked the Forest Service if I could get a plant, one plant of each kind that I could find and um, for a herbarium for school. And he said, oh, that sounds like a really nice project. Uh, I wish you good luck. And I recommend such and such a book that has all, the, all about all the plants in, in Colorado in it. And so I got the book. And um, every time we went somewhere, I looked all over the place. And on my free time, I went looking, you know, um, to see what I could find. And finally, at the end of the summer, I had a book about that thick, you know, with all the plants um, lay, not labeled in the book, but on a separate sheet of paper. The plants were labeled A, B, C, D, and 1, 2, 3, 4, for whatever information I had. And um, I sent it to my sister in the Netherlands. She handed the herbarium in without the information, without that sheet that I made with all the information on it. And when she had the next class, the professor came in and said, where did you get those plants? I never saw any plants like that. Uh, would you please show me where you found them? <laughs> she said, no, I can't very well. Um, well, <laughs> she wouldn't tell him. <laughs> and, and so it took about a month before he, he convinced her that she ought to tell him where these, these flowers and plants came from. And she says, you know, I hate to tell you, but my sister... It was in Colorado last summer, and she got you a bunch of mountain plants from Colorado. He was so happy with the plants, he passed her with flying colors. <laughs> and he asked her if he could keep that herbarium. She gave him the list of what everything was and the, the other information on it. And she said, oh, yeah, you can keep it. <laughs> and... Um, she said she got an A in the course for doing that. That was very interesting. Um, another, another thing that stands out for me in that trip was that um, people that are so wealthy don't know anything. And they brought children. They looked at the washing machine and said, how do you use that thing? Could you... Please take my laundry and throw it in the washing machine and then in the dryer. Uh, we'll pay you 25 bucks for it. I said, sure, I'll do that. <laughs> um, babysitting, they just threw with money. And by the time I came out of there, I had enough money to pay for the whole year um, room and board and had lots of money left over for spending money. So I could really concentrate on my studies. Um, one time they um, decided they were going to have an overnight. The Wranglers would let all the guests um, ride horses 
And we were supposed to be, as the, you know, the service people from the dining room, we were supposed to serve the food that they were going to cook over a fire that night. And anybody who could go, well, we had about 20 people that went. And, and um, as waitresses and the hostess walked. So they went up to a place that was near a glacier. The glacier was coming down there. And... Um, it was pretty cold, but um, they thought that was for many of them was the first time they'd ever camped. So the wranglers set up tents and made the fire and cooked the food, and they decided for breakfast uh, they were going to have uh, watermelon. So they took the watermelon to the, to the glacier, and um, they dug them into the snow so they'd stay cool for the night. And they hobbled all the horses, and everybody went to bed. Next morning, we got up, and they started fixing breakfast, and they sent some wranglers over to get the watermelons. There were no watermelons. What happened to them? Um, somebody went over to take care of the horses, and the horses... They were, had been hobbled. Instead of being nice, sleek, riding horses, they had bellies like that. They had eaten all the watermelons at night. They dug them up and eaten them. And you couldn't ride a horse like that. That was not good. The wranglers decided that was very unhealthy for the horses. But the people that had been riding them hadn't gotten proper walking shoes on. And this time, they were, they were forced to walk down the slope, and everybody had to carry something because we couldn't load the horses down. And it was just a, a total surprise to these people that had never been out in the field and sleeping overnight. But fortunately, most of them were uh, game and they, we did get all the stuff down. And then they called, the wranglers called the horse, uh, a veterinarian who came up. And I couldn't believe what he did. He had this long, hollow needle, and he stuck them in the, in the horse's belly the, in the right place, and he went, and, you know, all this gas came out. And they... they you could see them getting more slender as they lost all that. So it was very interesting. So it's a warning. Don't ever feed a watermelon to a horse. Um, at the end of the summer, um, the, um, my friends came by to this place and picked me up to go back to school for the last year. And the last year was uneventful. My knee was healing very nicely. Uh, but I found out I had flunked swimming in the, in the, past, uh, in the past year. Because we were supposed to take a swimming course, and everybody was required whether you knew how to swim or not. Because uh, I hadn't taken the final. And I went to the swimming teacher and I said, you know, I didn't take the final because I had a cast on my leg. I would have drowned if I'd gotten in, in the pool with that. Well, you, you didn't pass. And so I finally went to the head of the department and said, 
I think this is unreasonable. And um, she said, yeah, I know how you know how to swim. Uh, and I'm going to cross that out. That's unreasonable. I agree with you. But I thought it was kind of silly. Um, then, the, at the end of that last year, I didn't want to go to graduation because there were none of my family could be there. And I had a job at North Rim Lodge in the Grand Canyon as the hostess of the dining room. And um, I told the school it would be a very sad occasion for me to get graduation when there was nobody there for me. And they said, and I had this job, and it started early. And he, they said, well, yeah, we can understand that, so just go. Um, I was at North Rim Lodge. When I arrived there, they had um, a dining room going. It was a beautiful dining room with the great big windows that overlooked the canyon. It, it was gorgeous. The only thing I had was kind of trouble because they had hired a new manager who had been fired a year before we understood in a, in a Wisconsin resort because of the way he treated his help. Um, the, the waitresses there were uh, 17, 18, 19 years old, you know, kids that were going to college and trying to make a living. Um, he had ordered that they could each have one apron, uh, no, two aprons and one uniform. Um, and they were supposed to, after working all day at night, to wash that whole outfit and iron it and show up at work the next day with everything spotlessly clean. Well, the, the problem was that there were big tables there that seated 12 people, you know, big round tables, right? So everybody could look in the, in the canyon. And these girls were carrying extremely heavy trays to wait on these people. Then they had to clear after they were done. And before they, um, they opened the dining room, they had to set all the places there. And by the time they were finished with all their work, they had worked at least nine hours, which is heavy work. And I went to the bathroom one evening, and they, um, I found the girls crying because they were so tired, and they hurt so badly. And I said, well, what's going on? I had no idea that they hadn't got more than one uniform. And I'd waited on tables, and they'd always provided lots of uniforms so that you could throw them in the, in the laundry in the, uh, in a, after one week. So I went to the management, and I said, they need more uniforms. And he said, oh, well, um, I said, if I don't have happy girls, I cannot run a happy, ba uh, happy dining room. And um, he said, well, okay, you can order one more uniform and two more aprons. So I sent off an order that for six uniforms and 12 more aprons. 
And when he saw the bill, he just about jumped out of his skin. He was so mad. And um, he said, Mel, why did you do that? And I said, because I have worked in a dining room myself, and I know how difficult it is, and I know that you need uh, to have, need to wash laundry once a week, and you can barely manage it because it's heavy work. So you're with the with the, with the people that work here, and I says yes, because if I'm running a dining room. I want people to be happy and not completely worn out. And he says, you are not with me. You don't listen to me. And I said, no, because you were wrong. <laughs> he says, you're fired. Okay, I'm fired. He said, we're going to put you on the bus tomorrow, and you're going to Salt Lake City, and we'll put you on the train from there. Where do you want to go? And I said, to Kansas City. Okay, that's fine. So I told the girls that I was fired and I was going on the bus the next day. Well, the bus showed up and believe it or not, every waitress showed up. Climbed on the bus and said, we don't want to work for this guy. And for that whole summer, I understand, he had to send all his dining room customers to another dining room somewhere else. It didn't work, and I understand he lasted one summer and was fired himself because the way he treated people. So I felt um, pretty good about that. And then, uh, since I had been admitted to, um, to Cleveland Clinic to study physical therapy, uh, I went to a physical therapy clinic in Kansas City and asked if they had a space for me, maybe as um, oh, an aide or something. And I was interviewed, and they hired me on the spot. And they said, we need somebody. Um, now, again, I had trouble with one patient. And if you recall the people that were here, I had trouble with somebody from Alabama in, at the embassy in, um, in Rotterdam who couldn't speak English and I couldn't speak American. Well, I spoke American, but when I couldn't understand him, he, he kind of chewed me out and said, you know, I can't give you a, a visa because you don't speak English properly. I went out, finally he did, but I went outside and the secretary said, you know, you couldn't understand him and I told her, I can't understand him either, and I'm from the United States. So, um, I had one patient who was from Alabama who was kind of like a Trump character with hands all over a woman, and um, I couldn't understand him, and I walked out on him and told, told my boss, and he said, you don't have to, and for remember this, you don't ever have to treat a patient if they behave like that. You just tell them, get out of here. And that's what they did. Um, I did find a room to stay in uh, for the summer. And uh, I, till what time do we have? Till about 10 after if you've got 10. Okay. Um, so 
one time, I'll, I'll have to lead in if anybody was interested in the follow-up. Follow um, one time I had given a talk to the Congregational Women of the United States. They had a conference in the Ozarks. Um, it was a wonderful weekend. I sang for them and played the guitar and talked to them, and, you know, and they were very nice. Um, after the conference was over and I was back at school, uh, one of the ladies kept sending me a little gift. You know, one day it was a piece of jewelry that she'd seen that she liked, and another time it was some stockings. She said, oh, any girl in college can have, need some stockings. So she had just gifts that she'd seen around and about. And um, she was from Kansas City, and I didn't remember who she was because there were 500 women, and I couldn't, you know, my mind is not that good that I can remember 500 faces with names put together. Um, I decided to call her and uh, thank her in person because I kept sending her thank you notes. It was very nice that somebody was so wonderful. And she said to me, would you like to come over to our house for dinner and bring your guitar and sing for us? So I said, yeah, that sounds great. Because the, the place I was staying was a room in a home, and the, the housewife thought I was after her husband, who was no, three times as old as I was. She, she was crazy. Um, and to get out of there was kind of nice. And um, so I went. And it was at a time when you didn't have air conditioning yet, and they had these beautiful trees all over the, the city. All the, the streets were lined with, with elm trees still. And so what you did at night to keep cool, you opened all the doors and windows. And uh, we had a wonderful dinner. She's an awfully good cook. And they said, now we are going to have a song fest. So I got my guitar out, and I sang and sang and sang, and sometimes they joined in, and sometimes they were just listening. And um, the husband took me back to my room, and um, she, the, the Lucille, who was the hostess, went out the next day um, and talked to her neighbor on the over the hedge. And a neighbor said, um, we were sitting outside last night and we heard this wonderful record you were playing. What's the name of that? Because I would like to go get it. And, she, and Lucille said, um, uh, I forget the name of the record. I'd have to look that up. But what we'll do is we'll invite you for dinner and we'll play that record for you. And, uh, well, that is the end of this story. And if you want to hear more, I can do another. Um, because I still have to tell you about my trials and tribulations with the INS. And the trials and tribulations I had going home, trying to get off the boat in Rotterdam. 
Um, there were some real serious problems. But the time is up. It's 10 after. And uh, thank you all for listening. I hope I haven't bored you. <laughs> <laughs>